Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right, some big news there. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and you have been watching the district attorney in Atlanta holding a news conference where we've just learned about 11 charges for the now former police officer who shot Rayshard Brooks twice in the back among those charges, felony murder. According to the district attorney, the former officer could face the death penalty. And we're going to get back to that story in just moments. But we have some other big breaking news in our politics lead today. And there is a very good reason, it seems, that the White House wanted to stop John Bolton, once uh, one of the president's former top aides, from publishing his book, Explosive bombshells in it, major new claims about President Trump coming from one of his closest aides for nearly 18 months. In excerpts from former National Security Advisor Bolton's new book obtained by The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post, Bolton claims President Trump asked the Chinese president to help him win re-election. Writing this about President Trump during a meeting last June, quote, he then stunningly turned the conversation to the coming U.S. presidential election, alluding to China's economic capability to affect the ongoing campaigns, pleading with Chinese President Xi to ensure that he, Trump, would win. Trump stressed the importance of farmers and increased Chinese purchases of soybeans and wheat in the electoral outcome, unquote. And Bolton claims that President Trump went even further to try to win over leaders such as President Xi. According to the New York Times, quote, Mr. Bolton described several episodes where the president expressed willingness to halt criminal investigations, to, in effect, give personal favors to dictators he liked, citing cases involving major firms in China and Turkey. Quote, the pattern looked like obstruction of justice as a way of life, which we couldn't accept, Mr. Bolton writes, adding that he reported his concerns to Attorney General William Barr. And as for why President Trump would make these decisions, Bolton writes, quote, I am hard pressed to identify any significant Trump decision during my White House tenure that wasn't driven by re-election calculations. CNN's Vivian Salama and Dana Bash join me now to discuss. And Dana, Bolton makes a lot of claims in these new excerpts. But I, start, I want to start with this idea of President Trump asking China to get involved in the 2020 election. This is an immediate flashback to Russia, if you're listening, or the entire Ukraine scandal. That's right. And that is why uh, the former national security advisor in uh, this book and also in an op-ed that he writes is making very clear that he believes that House Democrats uh, conducted their probe in too narrow of a way. Uh, that they should have gone beyond Ukraine because this is a pattern that they could have proved the pattern. Um, I, I will say, because I think it's important to say that if I am a House Democrat, if I am an impeachment manager, I'm tearing my hair out right now because this is exactly what uh, Democrats on both sides of the Capitol were hoping John Bolton would do in some way, shape or form before now, before, you know, five months before the election or most importantly, you know, four, three or four months after the impeachment 
inquiry and the probe and, and the votes were all over. There are lots of discussions about why. And I know that John Bolton uh, was supposed to get to that in this book. But that is really the big question is, is why now and why are we not learning? Why did we not know about this? And why did the investigators not know about these other instances beyond Ukraine and Russia during the campaign? Of course, we should note that, that Bolton did offer to testify before the Senate, and the Senate voted against it, um, except for uh, Mitt Romney and Susan Collins, every Republican voting against any new evidence. Uh, Vivian, this is an issue that was also at the heart of the impeachment inquiry. The president getting a foreign power, trying to get a foreign power to interfere with the U.S. election. Criticism already rolling in from Democrats uh, about this, of course. But beyond that, we should just talk about the, the issue it's unprecedented for a U.S. president to ask rivals, foreign countries, for help in his own reelection. That's right, Jake. And it was essentially at the heart of the impeachment inquiry. And to Donna's point, I just got um, a text message from one of my sources on the Houch impeachment team with just a cringe face, because that's how they're reacting right now as these details come out. So many of these details that would have helped the Democrats' case during the House impeachment inquiry, um, but really did not sway Republicans in any way because of the fact that they fell short, a lot of them believed, of what they needed to really uh, get a lot of Republicans to come on board with them and see things through. So John Bolton here now laying things out um, in a very detailed manner, both in his op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, but also the excerpts that we're now seeing published uh, in, the Wall in the Washington Post and the New York Times, where he's indicating that not only was this a problem with Ukraine, you also had instances with China. And his China anecdotes are the ones that he really gets into um, in quite a lot of detail. And he talks about, in one case, um, one of the highlights in his Wall Street Journal op-ed, I don't know if you have this, uh, this, this, this pullout, but it says, one highlight came when she um, said that he wanted to work with Trump for six more years. And Trump replied, people were saying that the two-term constitutional limit on presidents should be repealed for him. She said the U.S. had too many elections because he didn't want to switch away from Trump who nodded approvingly. And Bolton goes on to say these were such explosive and unprecedented exchanges with a foreign leader, and especially one who, in Bolton's opinion, certainly um, was someone that the U.S. should have viewed with a lot of skepticism. Uh, he also goes on to talk about Ukraine and the, the exchanges with the Ukrainian leader, saying that, uh, essentially confirming what we heard from so many of the House impeachment witnesses in their public testimonies about Bolton being very weary um, about the president's reluctance to provide aid to Ukraine. And he says that he wasn't the only one. Secretaries Esper and Pompeo were also pushing for it as well. Right. And, and Bolton goes on to say that the, the aid to Ukraine was, in President Trump's mind, completely tied in with the Ukrainian government announcing investigations uh, into Joe Biden and, and also Hillary Clinton. Vivian, there's another national security uh, at play here having to do with the Chinese. Uh, Bolton notes that in 2018, the Trump administration was considering sanctions against China for how they're treating the Uyghurs, these, these Muslim Chinese. Um, months later, Bolton writes, quote, at the opening dinner of the Osaka G20 meeting in June 2019, with only interpreters present, President Xi, the president of China, had explained to Trump why he was basically building concentration camps in China, 
According to our interpreter, Trump said that President Xi should go ahead with building the camps, with Trump, which Trump thought was exactly the right thing to do. That is, if true, obscene. The president of the United States of America signing off with the Chinese president, go ahead and build your concentration camps, locking up this ethnic minority. That's right. And President Trump has been very unapologetic about the fact that he doesn't feel he needs to tell other countries what to do with regard to human rights in their own domestic instances. But this is just a very blatant abuse of human rights that is something that even Secretary Pompeo and others within the administration have ex- publicly expressed their concern about at varying times. And for um, someone like Ambassador Bolton, who is always wary of the Chinese and has been uh, a-, a staunch opponent of theirs and a lot of their domestic practices, this is just something that it was so shocking. Now, I can't speak to the president's mindset, obviously. I don't know to the extent to which he was briefed in advance on the uh, issue of the Uyghurs. And so there is that to take, in, to take into consideration. That's not revealed so far in the excerpts that we have. However, um, it, it's something that typically any U.S. president would sort of know that they should not uh, proceed with any kind of encouragement about any kind of concentration camps or something like that. And so um, obviously, Ambassador Bolton noting that and saying that it was very disturbing for him and other advisors. And Dana, it's no surprise that um, the former National Security Advisor, Ambassador Bolton, was skeptical uh, of the president's attempts uh, to broker some sort of deal uh, with the North Korean mm-hmm. dictator, uh, Kim Jong-un. That, that, that's no surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a longtime hawk, a longtime skeptic of diplomacy with Kim Jong-un. Um, but I, he, there's this other revealing excerpt Uh, where it becomes clear that he's not the only skeptic, including some of the president's most public defenders. According to the New York Times, quote, during Mr. Trump's 2018 meeting with North Korea's leader, according to the book, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo slipped Mr. Bolton a note disparaging President Trump, saying he is so full of S-H-I-T. A month later, Mr. Bolton writes, Mr. Pompeo dismissed the president's North Korea diplomacy, declaring that there was, quote, zero probability of success, unquote. I mean, Secretary of State Pompeo has been vocally one of the president's most uh, forceful and aggressive defenders when it comes to North Korean diplomacy. But according to Bolton, he thinks it's a crock. Yeah, I mean, that that is really a remarkable picture that Bolton paints there. I would imagine we're going to hear from Secretary Pompeo at some point denying that. But it does speak to the broader message in this book, which I think, you know, is important to underscore that we've seen and heard uh, from former aides to presidents, Democrat and Republican, but never in, in, I don't think in, in, certainly in modern history, especially when a president is still in office, have we seen something this just absolutely, uh, stunning and intense and um, and eviscerating as we are seeing in this Bolton book. It's certainly what he signaled that he was going to do in every way, shape or form. Uh, but he certainly seems to have delivered on that promise, uh, talking about the president being inept on foreign policy and in every other way and not just inept, effectively saying he's He's a corrupt person. Uh, and, and, and that is something that is going to be very hard for the Trump administration and for the Trump campaign to overcome, even though obviously they're going to try. That's right. John Bolton being one of, for decades now, one of the most conservative uh, pundits uh, and uh, policymakers uh, in 
the United States. Former Fox uh, commentator Vivian Dana, thanks so much. I want to bring in Democratic Senator Chris Murphy uh, of Connecticut. And Senator Murphy, um, let me just posit that every Democrat on Capitol Hill thinks that John Bolton should have said this during the impeachment hearing. Uh, and if not, then Republicans should have voted to hear from him uh, during the impeachment trial. Uh, I get that, but I, we're, I don't want to waste any time on that because the allegations he's making are so stunning. Um, there is a lot here. Here's one quote from John Bolton. I am hard pressed to identify any significant Trump decision during my White House tenure that wasn't driven by reelection calculations, unquote. And that's part of, in Bolton's view, President Trump asking the president of China for help getting reelected. What's your response? Well, it's stunning, but not surprising. Uh, the president made very clear early on in his tenure that if a foreign government came to him with an offer of election help, he would not report them to the authorities, that he'd hear them out. So, you know, the president's been pretty unapologetic since the very beginning that he was going to likely solicit help from foreign governments. And the entire impeachment was over the question of whether it's legitimate for the executive to use the powers of the Oval Office to try to get foreign governments integrated into a president's reelection effort. So I, it's always stunning. I refuse for any of this to feel normal. But I mean, we have been told over and over again by this president that he believes he is allowed to use the foreign policy of this country to try to help himself politically. So nothing in Bolton's book really, um, uh, really changes what we have been told consistently by President Trump. And, and the New York Times writes that Bolton described several episodes where the president expressed willingness to halt criminal investigations to, in effect, give personal favors to dictators he liked involving major firms and China and Turkey. Bolton writes, the pattern looked like obstruction of justice as a way of life. This isn't Chuck Schumer saying this. This is John Bolton, obstruction of justice as a way of life. Listen, so everything John Bolton is saying here is consistent with what we know about this president. Um, at the same time, I know you told me I couldn't say it, but it is important to note that John Bolton <laughs> is trying to make money here. Uh, and it is curious to all of us that he wasn't willing to say this stuff uh, to, uh, to Congress, but he is willing to say it when he can make money. I'm not suggesting that what he's saying isn't true. I'm just saying that you do have to question his motives, and I have to question his motives even as a Democrat. But yes, you are getting further color in this book about this president's love affair with dictators. Information in this book that suggests uh, President Trump may have gotten advance notice that President Xi was going to set up concentration camps for Muslims and may have, in fact, endorsed that idea in a private meeting. Um, all of this is just incredibly disturbing, and it just speaks to how huge a job President Biden is going to have to try to turn around um, this sort of campaign of affection for dictators around the world. I didn't say you couldn't say it. I would never censor you. I just didn't want to waste our time with it. And I would note that every Senate Democrat plus Senator Susan Collins and Senator Mitt Romney voted to have more evidence, including a subpoena of John Bolton. But all of your other Republican friends voted against it. Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, thank you so much. Thanks. I appreciate your time. We have some breaking news now. Eleven charges, including felony murder, just announced for the police officer, now former police officer, who shot Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta over the weekend. He could even face the death penalty. That's next. Plus, a coronavirus task force meeting is underway this hour as the vice president misleads the public about the state of the pandemic. 
And President Trump plans to pack an arena full of people. No masks required. Stay with us. Moments ago, the Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney announced that the now fired Atlanta police officer, Garrett Rolfe, is facing 11 charges, including felony murder and aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. If he is found guilty, he could even face the death penalty. Rolfe, of course, shot Rayshard Brooks twice in the back as Brooks was running away from officers following a scuffle over the weekend. A video from the scene showed Brooks had gained control of an officer's taser and appeared to point it toward the police as he ran. The other officer present, Devin Brosnan, is facing three charges, aggravated assault and two counts of oath violation. But Brosnan has agreed to become a state witness in the case against Rolf. I want to bring in CNN's Ryan Young, who was at that news conference just a few minutes ago. Ryan, the district attorney really laying out a case against former officer Rolf. He did. Not only did he lay out the case, but they brought evidence into the room that had sort of the crowd inside aghast, really. I can tell you the family members of Rashad Brooks were on the inside there, and so were some other witnesses that were, are going to be playing a key role in all this. One of the things I think that caught everyone off guard is the analyzation of the video that was there. Everyone sort of watched the body camera video, but what they didn't realize is the fact that at some point, both officers interacted with Mr. Brooks after he'd already been shot. We were told that Garrett Wolf actually kicked Mr. Brooks while he was down. And Officer Bronson stood on top of him saying that he wasn't sure if he had a weapon. Now, of course, there was a 41-minute conversation before the uh, sort of altercation took place. And at no time, according to the DA, Paul Howard, did they tell him that he was going to be under arrest. He actually said that he seemed jovial during the entire process. He didn't seem like a threat. When he ran off with the taser, at some point, hey, it seemed like he fired it up into the air. What are and you so reporting this on is the one fact those things we're that talking, his feet... Hold, hold on one second. Are you we're reporting talking, on the fact that his feet was so, on you his shoulder? That's what I'm actually talking you about. You all need so to be working on those things that people are talking about. So that we can provide... Behind us, they are actually blocking down the process. So you can understand why people are upset about what's going on. This media outlet needs to be reporting... That this is what justice for the next generation. All right, we're gonna like. we're gonna uh, uh, take it over now uh, from Ryan. Sorry about that, Ryan. I want to bring in CNN senior legal analyst and former federal prosecutor uh, Laura Coates. Obviously, some very uh, strong emotions going on in Atlanta. Understandably, um, first, I, I just want to get your reaction to these charges uh, for both uh, police officers. You know, it is stunning, not because it's something that's not justified, but because you rarely see the speed and the breadth of these scopes, breadth of these charges being charged against officers in this manner. I mean, you're talking about this happened really over the weekend. They immediately began investigating early morning hours after he was killed. You have the ideas of all the analysis of the videos. I think what is sticking in everyone's mind as what was palpable of the frustration and anguish that that man behind Ryan Young was speaking about was two things. Number one, it was the phrase, I got him, said by the officer after he shoots him twice, after knowing that he's not armed with anything besides a taser that can no longer be operable, and then kicks him while he is down on the ground after being shot at least twice in the back. You see, all the attention has been on to this point, those 41 minutes where he was compliant before any sort of struggle ensued. But in reality, the tone of this prosecution has been on what happened not only during, but after the conduct of these officers after not rendering aid for over two minutes, Jake, kicking him, standing on his body, desecrating him in that fashion. And then to find out that another officer 
is going to turn state's witness and cooperate in an investigation against another police officer. This is very, very rare. And finally, the fact that they're citing these two Supreme Court cases, Tennessee versus Garner, about not being able to shoot a fleeing suspect, and also the idea of Graham versus Connor about a reasonable standard, this is something that people have been waiting for for a very long time. Uh, and let me go, go back to Ryan uh, in Atlanta, if I can. And Ryan, tell us more about the second yeah. officer agreeing to become a, a, a witness uh, for the state. As Laura Coates points out, that's very, very rare. Look, that was out uh, inside the room. People sort of uh, were in shock when that happened as well. And I think that's the sort of reaction that we're getting from the public. Look, that you can feel the heat in terms of people being upset. They're blocking traffic all the way around us and not letting any sort of traffic go by the Justice Center. That man wanted to come over and he said, look, they didn't know that the officers were standing on top of Mr. Brooks. And they're very angry about that. And in fact, they hadn't planned this protest until they heard that. So you can understand that. The other part they're upset about right now is that Paul Howard said they have until tomorrow at 6 p.m. to turn themselves in. What they want is for police to go arrest them. They don't understand why they're getting a chance to turn themselves in. But when you think about the fact that... Um, this thing is actually going step by step in terms of what the process is. You can obviously tell that something's going to change here. That's what's going to change in the city. All right, Ryan, thank you. Uh, let me go back to Laura Coates. Uh, Laura, according to Philip Stinson, an associate professor of criminal justice at Bowling Green State University who studies police statistics, between 2005 and April 2017, so that's 12 years, 80 officers were arrested on murder or manslaughter charges for on-duty shootings. Only 35% of those were convicted, while the rest were pending or, or not convicted. It is very rare. There are about 1,000 police shootings a year. It's very rare that officers uh, are accused, charged, and, even, and, and also rare that they're ever found guilty. That's true, which is one of the reasons people were sort of smirking at a national database in the executive order that only contemplated in part those who had actually been convicted, knowing the rarity of it, or those who had had a civil charge against them, which the qualified immunity does away with in many respects. And so you're seeing the rarity of all of these things, but you're also seeing something that you don't often see here, Jake, and that is not only are these officers charged with what they have done to Mr. Rayshard Brooks, there are at least three counts involving what they could have done to bystanders who were in the car near about 10 feet where Mr. Rayshard Brooks was gunned down. The fact that they have considered not only the the, um, the danger to Rayshard Brooks, but also these three other people who were in a car is also quite expansive here and says to you that the only person who in that drive drive through who posed a real threat, at least one, were the officers. And one more thing, I was really surprised to see, Jake, and I did not know about this aspect, that the officers not only had had this cordial 41-minute conversation, they suspected there was a bulge in his pocket and they did not seek to investigate it because they took his word that it wasn't a weapon. Now tell me one officer feels as though their life is being threatened and doesn't bother to do a comprehensive search of one's body. That led to these charges as well, but that kick, that kick of that man, the standing on his shoulders, is something that I can understand about the palpable anger and what is probably one of the biggest considerations of these particular prosecutors in this case. All right, Laura Coates, thank you so much. Our thanks to Ryan as well. President Trump's plan to pack 20,000 enthusiastic supporters into an arena during a pandemic. Now another expert is sounding the alarm. Stay with us. 
I don't know if it sounds like a good idea. This Saturday, more than 19,000 people will enter an otherwise closed-for-business arena where they will not practice social distancing and not be required to wear a mask. Who would put together such a dangerous event? Well, the President of the United States, as CNN's Jeremy Diamond now reports. Pandemic be damned. President Trump pushing ahead with plans to draw tens of thousands of people to a campaign rally this weekend in Tulsa, Oklahoma even though the city today announced its highest daily number of coronavirus cases. In fact, infections are increasing in 21 states, including Oklahoma. But Vice President Mike Pence says the state will be the perfect host. The number of cases uh, in Oklahoma uh, has declined precipitously, and uh, uh, we feel very confident uh, going forward uh, with the rally this coming weekend. But that's not true. Cases are actually rising in Oklahoma, with one-fifth of all cases diagnosed in just the last week. And while Trump and Pence have blamed testing for rising case counts, testing in this state is actually down. But the vice president now says reporting on those spikes is fear-mongering. Writing in an op-ed, the media has taken to sounding the alarm bells over a second wave of coronavirus infections. Such panic is overblown. The U.S. isn't yet in a second wave of coronavirus, but that's because surges in several states are prolonging the first wave. Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany today passed the buck to rallygoers when asked if the president would take responsibility for a rally-induced coronavirus outbreak. When you come to the rally, um, as if any event, you assume a personal risk. Um, that is just what you do. But that risk is one the president and his campaign are creating potentially packing 20,000 people into an indoor arena where masks won't be mandatory. In a deep red state, the president is all but certain to win in November. The reasons that we chose Oklahoma is because Oklahoma has done such a remarkable job uh, in reopening their state. We've really seen a tremendous amount of progress. A day after posting on social media that he's anxious about the rally, Tulsa's mayor today praised the president for choosing his city. And I'm very grateful uh, that the president would select Tulsa to highlight in that way. But the city's health director, after announcing a new record of cases, said he's worried. I mean, people coming together without taking precautions is what causes the, the virus to transmit. It gives the virus the ability to transmit from person to person. So, of course, we're concerned. You know, I, I, I recommend that it, it be postponed until it's safer. Meanwhile, the White House press secretary stumped when asked if doctors were consulted about pushing forward with campaign rallies. And sources telling CNN the president has largely tuned out the pandemic, focused instead on reviving the economy and his re-election prospects. They just don't want to deal with the reality of it. They're in denial, an administration official close to the task force told CNN. And Jake, at this hour, Vice President Mike Pence is actually meeting with members of the coronavirus task force. And we're told that those health officials are expected to raise this issue of rising case counts in nearly two dozen states. But Jake, there's no indication that that's going to affect or change the posture at the White House as it relates to this pandemic. Uh, this task force, we've been told, Jake, has largely been sidelined. And instead, uh, the president seems eager to move forward with renewing this or creating, frankly, this sense of normalcy. We know at key inflection points he has listened to those health officials. But now, Jake, the president just wants to get back to campaigning. Jake. 
All right, Jeremy Diamond, thank you so much. And as Jeremy just said, this hour, the vice president is leading this coronavirus task force meeting. While he simultaneously uh, falsely suggests coronavirus is going away, Dr. Sanjay Gupta will join us and bring the facts. That's next. And we're back with our health lead today, where the White House task force is meeting at this hour behind closed doors with Vice President Pence. Joining us now, CNN Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, you reported this morning that the top doctors on the task force, including Fauci and Burks, have been meeting regularly uh, by phone or by Zoom without Pence involved for weeks. Do Do you know what they're briefing him on today? I think it's all about the, the, the rising numbers and the rising number of newly infected people, uh, Jake. Yeah, they call themselves the doctor's group, and it's sort of an offshoot of the coronavirus task force, which had their, their last official sort of briefing on April 27th. So these doctors, uh, Dr. Hahn from the FDA, Dr. Redfield from the CDC, Dr. Fauci, Ambassador Burks, all got together to basically say, we're going to meet a couple, three times a week, have our meetings focus on science and medicine, the coronavirus task force itself seemed more focused on the economy and reopening the country. So we wanted to make sure that, that particular issue of the science and the medicine uh, was not neglected. And I, and I guess around once a week uh, or so, they briefed the vice president. Today, it's about these, these rising numbers. And I was just looking at the calculations, Jake. April 27th, there were some 50,000 people who had died in this country. And now, you know, seven weeks later, you can see the numbers, 117,000, just under a million people had been infected seven weeks ago, and now it's over two million, as you see there, Jake. So that's what's happened since the task force stopped having their, their, their formal meetings. And, and uh, speaking of Burks and Fauci trying to brief the vice president about the science and the facts, um, in yesterday's Wall Street Journal uh, op-ed by the vice president, he said a lot of things about the virus that simply do not stand up to scrutiny. Um, he said cases in Oklahoma where the president's having his first campaign rally uh, since coronavirus be- began on Saturday, he said cases there are flattened and the number of cases there have declined. Here, here's the truth. Cases have been rising in recent days. In Tulsa, there was a 3% jump in the past 24 hours. The director of the Tulsa Health Department said he wished the rally uh, would be rescheduled. Uh, how dangerous do you think this rally could be? I, I found that part of the op-ed, Jake, perhaps the most stunning because it's so easily checked. Say the numbers are going down, they're not. In fact, a fifth of all the cases in Oklahoma throughout this pandemic uh, have just uh, been uh, diagnosed this, this past week. And it's not because of increased testing. Testing's actually gone down and cases have gone up. Just to be clear, I mean, because I think a lot of people get confused by this point. In Oklahoma, that's, it's not because of increased testing. N- nevertheless, uh, the situation is, is uh, the, the worst case scenario when it comes to potential spread or super spreading events. Uh, of this virus. Indoors, lots of people, no physical distancing, no required masks, a carnival-like atmosphere where people are shouting and potentially uh, putting lots of virus into the environment. Uh, you know, uh, there could be a lot of people who, ha- who are considered vulnerable either because of their age or pre-existing conditions. They then go back to their communities. You can get many, many clusters then as a result. So if you had to describe a scenario that you'd absolutely want to avoid in a city where the virus is uh, actually starting to increase in its circulation, this would be it. This would be sort of the worst uh, scenario you could describe. And, and we know from studies uh, that wearing a mask uh, dramatically decreases the chance of transmission. Uh, and yet the president and top officials around him are still seen 
publicly often not wearing them. Uh, what do you make of the example he's setting? Uh, it, it, it's, a, uh, a, it's a terrible example. I think we're going to look back on this time. I'm not sure exactly when in the future we will look back on this and say, I can't believe that we allowed that to happen, that we allowed people without masks uh, to be around the president because you wear a mask so you don't infect others, uh, but that the president himself is not wearing a mask so he doesn't infect others. I think we're just going to look back and say it, it uh, defied all, all logic. I think also the fact that the vice president is head of the coronavirus task force and he doesn't wear a mask and people around him aren't wearing a mask. I mean, it's a threat. I mean, it's not maybe as clear a threat as someone actually carrying a weapon or something, but this is a type of uh, weapon as well. And it's a threat. So I, I'm, I'm just sort of uh, shocked by it. We do know that these masks make a difference. Just quickly, Jake, a study came out of Health Affairs uh, just yesterday saying in places where masks were mandated here in the United States, probably prevented some 450,000 infections, Jake. And in the journal op-ed, uh, Pence also wrote, quote, in recent days, the media has taken to sounding the alarm bells over a second wave of coronavirus infections. Such panic is overblown. Um, what's the truth here? My impression is that we're not out of the first wave yet. Right. No, that, that's true. I mean, you know, the idea of waves, uh, is sort of, we go back to look at uh, the 1918 flu pandemic. We may not have sort of classic waves here. We can look at the, the, the trending graph here in the United States. You can see that there was a peak sort of mid-April, but then it's come down and it's sort of plateaued uh, with these reopenings. That's the graph on the left. The concern is that we may have additional spikes within this quote-unquote first wave. Just put up the, the graphic on the, of Italy on the right to give you an idea of what it actually looks like when you have a true ebb after a significant uh, you know, flow of cases. So we're nowhere near that, Jake, right now. All right, Sanjay, thank you so much. And be sure to tune in tomorrow night for CNN Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears, hosted by Sanjay, as well as our own Anderson Cooper. That's tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Coming up, 16 friends all infected with coronavirus after a night out on the town. Just one example of the spread as Florida and several other states see a big spike in new cases. Stay with us. Breaking news now. North Carolina and Texas are seeing their highest rates of hospitalizations from the coronavirus today. Arizona and Florida also seeing huge spikes in cases. Florida is among 21 states seeing an upward trend of new COVID-19 cases from week to week. As CNN's Nick Watt reports for us now. Record high case counts in the Sunshine State about a month after Florida triggered phase one reopening. We're not shutting down you know, we're going to go forward. We're going to continue to protect. Reopened bars now a growing concern. 16 friends who went out unmasked have all now tested positive. Receiving the text message that my friends were just boom, positive, boom, positive, boom, positive, back to back to back was almost a little overwhelming. They have a message for Florida's leaders and everyone else. Governor, mayor, everybody says it's fine. We go out. It's a friend's birthday. It was a mistake. For six days in a row now, Texas has set new records for the number of COVID-19 patients in the hospital. I think that we've uh, opened up too soon. Arizona also just smashed a record. Nearly 2,500 new COVID-19 cases in a single day. Nurses now coming in from out of state to help. This week, um, we did hit our capacity in our COVID-designated ICU unit. 
10 states in the South and West now seeing their highest average daily new case counts since this pandemic began. And then a few days or a week later, you'll see a spike in the hospitalizations. And then a few days later, you'll see a spike in the deaths. Another study just found that masks do help, preventing up to 450,000 cases between early April and mid-May in the 15 states and D.C. where masks were mandatory. Until you actually mandate, because people won't, don't, don't believe the hype, um, we won't be able to stop it. The mayor of Montgomery, Alabama, just tried and failed to make masks mandatory, even though the state's new case count has nearly doubled in just over a week. William Boyd has lost five family members to COVID-19, spoke at that council meeting. I think it's going to take someone in their family uh, to die. I think they, it, it got the death's got to knock on their door. Now, the mayors of nine cities in Texas have written to the governor asking for the authority to make masks mandatory in their cities. He won't give them that authority. Better news, perhaps, from the governor of New York, who says that Friday will be his last daily COVID briefing. Numbers are going down. His first briefing, Jake, was 111 days ago come Friday. All right, Nick Watt in California, thank you so much. Coming up next, the new high-tech tunnel being used to protect the president from coronavirus. Stay with us. In our world lead today, special tunnels installed in Moscow to try to protect Russian President Vladimir Putin from coronavirus. Anyone who enters Putin's home or the Kremlin gets sprayed with a disinfecting mist. But worth noting that mist doesn't actually kill coronavirus, which is an internal infection. The family of Rayshard Brooks is expected to speak any minute after the officers involved with charged. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thanks for watching. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.